these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed, also of honorable women which are Greeks, and of men not a few. Acts 17, 11, and 12. Welcome back to another episode of the Berean Dialogues. I'm your host, Russell LaFleur, and today I am actually uploading a conversation that I had during uh, the whole COVID-19 shutdown, where I was pretty much stuck in the house, as many of you were. And uh, this is a standalone interview. It is about biblical cosmology. My guest is Robert Sungenis. He is a geocentrist. He believes that the earth is the center of the entire universe and that that is the way God designed it. And that is also the way that it is uh, demonstrated or laid out in the word of God. So I hope you enjoy this episode and I really encourage y'all to listen to what he has to say because in my opinion, he makes some some pretty uh, cool and interesting points. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Brother Robert Sungenis, welcome to the show. Russell, it's nice to be here. Just in case there's any confusion, you affirm that geocentrism is true, correct? Oh, yes. And for the sake of the listeners who may not know, what is geocentrism exactly? Geocentrism basically uh, is exactly as the name implies, which is geo, the earth, is in the center of the universe. And that means that it doesn't move, either rotating or revolving around the sun. Um, So that's your basic definition. Now, from a theological perspective, does the Bible clearly teach the geocentric model of the universe? And if so, what are some of the most compelling passages that you can present to us? Yes, the Bible does teach it. It's very clear. It was clear to the early fathers of the church because they were in unanimous consent that the earth was in the center of the universe and didn't move. Uh, This was carried on from the fathers. uh, Let's say we go to 600 AD as the uh, end of the patristic period. Uh, After that, you had the medieval period. All the medieval theologians uh, believed in geocentrism, including Thomas Aquinas, and all the way up to um, the issues with Galileo in the 1600s. Uh, that's when the church came down hard against heliocentrism uh, by two popes, one in 1616 and one in 1633. And geocentrism still held sway at that time in the church up until about the early 1800s when there was some, let's say, chicanery going on in the church uh, wherein some card, high-placed cardinals wanted to uh, promote heliocentrism, and that was because of Isaac Newton, basically. Uh, and uh, he, he was like the pivot point. He was, he was the point where the heliocentric model had dimensions to it that the geocentric model could not yet produce. Up until Newton, everything was basically understood by geometrics, not by dynamics. 
And what I mean by dynamics are force laws, like Newton's force law, F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration, or his gravitational law, uh, force equals gravitation, the gravitational constant times mass of the first object times the mass of the second object over the radius squared between them. And um, so these were force laws, and that basically changed the whole dynamic, the whole uh, understanding of the cosmos, because he was the first one in history to be able to put forces behind the movements of the planets. Before that, everyone knew the planets had to move in a certain way in order to explain the motions we saw in the sky, but it was all geometric. It wasn't, had nothing to do with forces at all, and I'm including here Ptolemy, all the Indian astronomers in the 8th and 9th century. Um, I'm including Copernicus himself and Galileo. They really knew nothing about forces. They knew gravity existed, but they didn't know how to integrate it with the cosmos. So Newton basically was the first one, and he held sway for the next 200 years. He published his uh, Principia Mathematica in 1687, which was about, um, what, 50 or so years after Galileo had died. And uh, he, was, uh, he was celebrated as one of the greatest scientists in the world because he put forces behind the movements of the planets and, and things. And uh, he was endorsed by Immanuel Kant and all the other major philosophers. So at that time, you know, right into the 1700s, where you had the high renaissance taking place, you had the enlightenment um, coming next to it. Uh, boy, it was a time that science was really uh, making its own domain and winning the, the, the day against the church. And the church at that time was still holding on to geocentrism, but it was getting harder and harder as the decades went by. And um, so I don't know if I'm going too far afield of oh, your this question. Is great. But I, okay. So um, Newton, uh, so he publishes the Principia Mathematica 1687, and by 1887, which is about 200 years later, there's a whole new physics that has come about. And Isaac Newton is just about to be put to rest. And um, that's called Machian Mechanics, uh, invented by Ernst Mach. He's the same guy that we get, you know, the speeds Mach 1, Mach 2, Mach 3. Uh, very famous scientist of his day. And basically he said that Newton had no right to adopt the system that he adopted, even though everybody was behind Newton for 200 years. Nobody knew the assumptions that Newton was using, and Ernst Mach was the first one to point them out. And you'll have to excuse my, uh, <laughs> it looks like I still have my AOL on here, so let me uh, take that off. Yeah, so that way we won't get that ringing. Uh, okay, so um, Ma came along and said that, I, that Newton was wrong in assuming that the universe was absolute. Um, and that means Newton was wrong in assuming that the universe was infinite, that it couldn't move, and that he, so he was wrong in using that as the basis for his whole mechanical system. That's quite a statement. I mean, because what you're really saying is that uh, Newton's whole system of physics was short-sighted because he assumed that the only way 
to determine what was moving in our immediate environs, that is our solar system, was by eliminating the universe at large and just concentrating on the solar system. And so if you do that, then you know that the sun is bigger and Newton's calculation said the bigger the mass, the bigger the gravity, and then the Earth you knew was smaller. And so if that system is used, and we know that one has to go around the other, well, the only choice we have is that the smaller, with the smaller amount of mass and gravity, has to go around the larger, that is the sun. And it, it made sense to everybody, and actually it does make a lot of sense, because if you limit your system to just the solar system, it would have to work that way. And, uh, and you know, he calculated it all out in equations, and so the scientists were all satisfied about that because they base everything in science on equations. If you can put it in the equation, you, you can get your paper published. And um, so that held sway, as I said, for 200 years until this guy, Ernst Mach, came along and said, look, you can't do that. You can't assume that the universe is absolute and infinite and then create this system where you determine motions by the fact that whatever has the larger gravity is going to be the center and the ones with the smaller gravity have to go around it. You can't do that. So um, this changed everything. It changed everything. And basically it said that, look, you can either have the universe as a finite object, preferably spherical, go around its own center of mass that would be somewhere near the center of the universe and have that center of mass fixed. As we all know, it works in physics. The center of mass is always fixed. And whatever is outside of it, if, it, if we know it's going around, then it has to go around that center of mass that's fixed. And so he says you can have it that way, where now you've included the universe, you haven't eliminated it like Newton did, and so that universe can rotate around its center of mass, or it could be where you have the universe is fixed, and that means that what's ever in the center has to be moving. It has to be rotating. And so you can, he said you can have one of those two models, but you can't, as Newton did, say, well, I'm going to eliminate the second model where the universe revolves around the center and just take the first model where you have the, the uh, center uh, rotating in a fixed universe. And so this uh, shocked the whole physics world, and this was around the 1880s. And then Einstein got a hold of this. And as a matter of fact, what motivated Albert Einstein in his uh, relativistic theories was Mach's principle, as they called it that uh, either one could be true, that is, universe rotating around a fixed Earth or an Earth rotating in a fixed universe could be true. We just don't know which one is true, you see. So, um, and that's, <coughs> as I said, all relativistic mechanics. And so that was the, be the beginning, basically, of the revival of geocentrism, because now... Uh, because of what Einstein did, he put force laws into, into relativity. And he said that it wasn't just geometric. And Mach said the same thing. 
uh, it wasn't just geometric that we could say either one could be true. We could also say that either one could be true by force laws. And wow, this was like the, uh, the uh, double whammy because anybody could make a geocentric model and make it work. But not too many people could show the forces behind these movements that could show how it would actually be demonstrated in scientific terms and be, and be scientifically viable. So um, that changed everything. And by the, um, let's say, early, um, well, let's say mid-20th century, there were some Christian scientists. And by this time, Christian science was gaining its own because they were heavily in battle against the evolutionists. And like George, uh, what's his name, Henry Morris was the first one, and he wrote his book with um, Whitcomb in the early 1960s called The Genesis Flood, and that showed how all that we see in the geologic column or in the fossil record or whatever could be explained by a universal flood just as the Bible had described. And they were the pioneers in this. And then after them came a whole slew of scientists uh, working on the same thing. So Christian science basically was something that developed at that time for the first time in history, basically. I mean, there were other Christian scientists, but not for cosmology. Uh, there were, you know, what's his name, Lendl. Uh, or Melendev, you know, he dealt with genetics, and we had Louis Pasteur dealing with microbes and all that kind of uh, science, but nobody was dealing with cosmology. And so there were some Christian scientists who branched off of Morris and company and started to deal with uh, geocentric science and, and put wheels on it, basically. And then that's where I later came into the picture because I learned my trade from them. I just, I just advanced beyond what some of them said in the early stages, and that developed into us making our movie The Principle. So that, that gives you the trajectory of everything that has happened. What are some of the most compelling passages in the Bible that would point to geocentrism being true? Well, you have, um, there's two sets of them, basically. You have the ones where it says the sun rises and sets. And so everybody looks at that and says, okay, of the two objects, the earth and the sun, which one is moving? Well, the Bible says it's the sun. Now, along those lines, however, we would say, or because the heliocentrist would come back and say, yeah, but that's just phenomenological. You know, we see the sun rise because the earth rotates. And you could say to him, okay, I understand what you're saying. But then you would come back and you say, well, look, even we as geocentrists uh, view the sun rising and setting phenomenologically because the sun actually isn't rising and setting in the geocentric model. It's, it's revolving around the earth. But to rise and set means that you have to see the sun moving against a, a fixed background, and that fixed background is the horizon. And so the geocentrist can look at a sunrise and a sunset and say, and say, yeah, that's phenomenological. That is, we are looking at it as if um, 
the sun is rising and setting, uh, and we talk that way in English because we're not going to say, oh, well, the sun's actually revolving around the earth, so that's how why we see the sun rising and setting. So we'll, we'll basically do the same thing that a heliocentrist does because when he sees the sun rise, he's going to say, oh, the sun is rising. He's not going to go into the science and say, well, the reason I see the sun rising is because the earth is rotating and it just looks like the sun's rising. He, did, he doesn't do it that way. So both of us use that kind of language, and it, it really doesn't prove anything when you, when you s- describe things phenomenologically. So um, there's a whole set of passages in the Bible that speak that way. And so, and, but I don't use them as evidence for geocentrism because of the phenomenological aspect of that. So that now there are other passages that say the earth is not moving. Uh, and they're pretty numerous. There's about half a dozen of them in the Old Testament. First Chronicles 16, um, Psalm 93, um, there's, you know, there's Psalm 97. A lot, a lot of them are in the Psalms, but there are in Chronicles uh, a few, and there's some in Ecclesiastes uh, 1.5. Um, you know, I can go on and on. And they're basically saying that the earth doesn't move or they're saying that of the two, which one is moving? Well, it's the sun that's moving. Okay. Now, uh, so that brings up the other issue. Does the, does the Bible ever say that the earth is in the center of the universe? It actually doesn't. Okay. It actually says only that the earth isn't moving. And thus it's implied that because the earth isn't moving, that it's in the center of the universe. Because anything, a finite structure like a sphere, <clears throat> if that's rotating, it's going to rotate against the center, and it may not be the geometric center. It's going to be, as we found out from our physics, and even Newton said this, it's going to re- revolve around the center of mass of that system, not the geometric center. <clears throat> now, some people don't understand this, but if you've ever played tennis and you had a bad game and you throw your tennis racket, <laughs> well, you see that tennis racket wobbling instead of going around in a, in a um, equal, equilateral uh, uh, movement, you see it wobbling. Why is that? Well, that's because the tennis racket will revolve around its center of mass, not its geometric center. The geometric center of the tennis racket is probably a lot closer to the strings than it is in, in the, uh, I'm sorry, the um, center of mass of the tennis racket is a lot closer to the strings than it is to the center of the tennis racket. The geometric center, of course, is going to be equidistant from the tip of the uh, tennis racket to the handle of the tennis, the end of the handle of the tennis racket, you see. So that's why I think the Bible never says the earth is in the center, because in geometric science, geocentrism, the science of geocentrism says that the earth is the center of mass and the universe goes around that. And the sun is the the geometric center of the universe, okay? And if you have that distinction, you can account for all the movements that we see in the sky, um, some movements, uh, they have scientific names to them, like stellar parallax, stellar aberration, all those kinds of things that we see geometrically. We can account for that if we have the Earth as a center of mass 
and the sun as the geometric center of the universe. And that's what all our models show, by the way. Um, I, we have, um, and you can purchase this, it's a, it's a flash drive. Uh, I think it costs like $40 or something. But we have over 60 animations on that flash drive that you can play on your computer and see how the geometric or how the geocentric universe works. And in that, we have this thing I just described uh, between the center of mass and the, cent and the geometric center of the universe. So you can see how it all coordinates together. So um, getting back to the Bible now. Um, so the Bible says that the earth doesn't move in about a half a dozen places. So basically the Bible's taking the stance that when you see the sun rise, from the phenomenological perspective, your education, your smarts tell you that can be caused in two ways. Either the sun is actually moving against the horizon, and that means the earth is fixed, or it could mean that the earth is rotating and the sun is actually standing still. Okay, So the Bible comes to you saying basically, yeah, okay, we see those two possibilities, but of those two, which one is the real one? Because both can't be right. One has to be fixed and the other has to be moving. And so the Bible says, of those two, which is the correct way to view the universe? The correct way, it says, is that the earth is fixed and the sun is moving. Okay, now, we come to another set of passages where it explains it even more technically and descriptively. And this is the very passage that Cardinal Robert Bellarmine used against Galileo, and that was Joshua chapter 10. In Joshua 10, uh, Joshua is fighting five armies all at once that are attacking Israel. And... He's up high on a mountain and with all his Israeli soldiers, and they are watching the pagan armies come up the mountain to try to attack them. And there are so many in these armies that Joshua doesn't have enough time to defeat them all. And so he makes his request to God that he does at 12 noon, basically, where the sun is right overhead of the mountain. And why is Joshua up on the mountain in the first place? Well, because strategically, this is a good militaristic advantage he has because he, the sun is on his back shoulder, but it's right in the eyes of the enemies that are coming up the mountain. And so he has a great advantage because they can't see, basically. Uh, you know, unless they shield their eyes, and it's kind of hard to shield your eyes when you're fighting with a sword. And so he asks God to continue to keep the sun in the sky at 12 noon so that it will basically blind his enemies and he can defeat them. But he needs a little bit more time. He needs another 24 hours, basically. And, uh, so, and God grants his request. And the text says in Joshua 10 that God stopped the sun in the middle of the sky. It's the first time that God ever listened to the voice of a man to make such a request. And is it's so fantastic. It's written in, in this source and that source and, and to, if you want to verify it as an historical event. And the other thing that happens also is 
that in order to show that it's actually the sun that's being stopped from moving, as opposed to someone coming along and saying, oh, well, that's just the, that's just the fact that God stopped the earth from rotating. And so it just looks like the sun stopped in the sky. In order to defeat that kind of answer, the text includes the fact that the moon also stood still over the valley of Gibeon. And that means if, if, if you map this whole thing out, you see that the sun is at 90 degrees at 12 noon, right above its highest point. It's at its highest point in the sky. And the moon, if it's over the valley of Gibeon, that means it's going to be about um, it's going to be about at 30 degrees. So there would be 60 degrees difference between the moon and the sun, and that means that the the moon is 30 degrees higher than the Mediterranean Sea, because as the moon would continue to move, it would actually go into the Mediterranean Sea. Um, you know, perspectively. And, um, and so the text is adding that the moon also stood still. And why is that important? Well, because the moon and the sun, although they do go around every day, the moon moves faster than the sun does. Okay. And that means they, they move independently of one another. So in order to um, make it in order to show that it was actually the sun that wasn't moving, God also didn't move the moon. Because if that's the case, then you can't say that the earth is rotating and the earth was stopped from rotating. Why? Because if you stop the earth from rotating, the moon would still keep moving and it would eventually go into the Mediterranean Sea in about what? If it's that 30 degrees, it'd go into the Mediterranean Sea in about five hours or so. Okay, but that's not what happened. The moon stood in the, in the sky with the sun. So that means that of the two possibilities, stop, that is stopping the earth from rotating or stopping the celestial bodies from moving, the text is telling us that it's the celestial bodies that stop from moving, you see. And so you're, there's really no way around this. The only way out of this for somebody, because he can't, and by the way, Galileo offered the fact that the, that the earth stopped rotating, okay? And so his argument was defeated by Bellarmine because Bellarmine says, well, what about the moon, okay? Uh, you, you, you can't account for that if the earth just stopped rotating. The only other way out of this passage is to say it's all metaphorical. It's all, you know, just uh, myth and legend and all this kind of stuff. And that's what a lot of liberal scholars do. They just don't think it was an historical event, you know, and that's an easy way to take care of it. But if you're, if you're going to take the Word of God as the Word of God, that is, it's infallible, it's inerrant, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, then you take the text for what it tells you, and you don't make up stories like, oh, well, we don't have to believe that because, you know, all this stuff is myth and legend, just like the Tower of Babel and the, the Genesis Flood and all this kind of, they're all myths and legends that they got from Mesopotamian culture a long time ago and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, they can go their way, but they're not dealing with the text as the text stands. So, uh, so that's the third level of geocentric passages that you would use where the, the Bible actually comes out and tells you what stopped moving, what isn't moving, what is moving, and all this stuff. So you can take it as verifiable fact. 
Now, I've heard another explanation as far as the Joshua passage and others. Um, they'll say that God accommodates mankind's limited scientific knowledge by assuming that our scientific misconceptions are correct in order to communicate with us. So they basically that God accommodates for man's lack of understanding and doesn't necessarily correct him. Do you, do you um, think that that's a valid argument? No, because basically what you're saying is God is lying to man. In other words, God has to make up stories because God assumes, first of all, that men are just not intelligent enough to understand plain language. Uh, and this applies to a lot of the Bible. They use this kind of apologetic for a lot of things that happen that, that seem to be miraculous in the Bible or that are miraculous. And the way they explain them away is by saying, yeah, well, God takes into account man's you know, kind of low intelligence and basically tells him another story. And I'm saying both of those are wrong. First of all, men are very intelligent. Okay, you can't assume going into the narrative that these people are stupid and they have to be talked to like they're, you know, kindergartners. Uh, that's the first fallacy that they make. The second fallacy is that God would stoop to telling another story that isn't true because the Bible says that God can't lie. And so if God's going to give a description of what's happening, you can depend upon it that he's going to describe exactly what's happening and not use it to be a symbol of some other kind of story, you see. Uh, you know, God, is, as far as I'm concerned, God never does that in the Bible. He just comes at you and tells you point blank what the truth is, and it's up to you to accept it or not accept it, you see. So, yeah, I, I would discount that kind of uh, mm. excuse. I mean, I appreciate that. Now, are there any modern scientists that believe geocentrism to be true? And if so, would you mind uh, giving a couple names of those scientists to our audience? Well, there, let's, let's answer that this way. Are there any scientists in the world who know that geocentrism could be true, that, it's, that it is a viable scientific position that can be sustained by basing it on what we know of physics today? And the answer to that is there 100% of them do, okay? That means, in other words, they know from modern physics that geocentrism is a perfectly viable position to have. On the other hand, if you ask these same scientists, which system do you prefer? Or which system would you like to see taught in the schools or written in the books and the magazines and, and promoted on the television shows? They're going to tell you heliocentrism, you see. So you have to answer that question very gingerly. On the one hand, yeah, they all know it's possible. On the other hand, do they want it? For God's sakes, no. Okay, they don't want anything taught of geocentrism in the schools, on TV, books, newspapers, anywhere. Why? Well, because there's a larger story here. And that larger story is, if the Earth is in the center of the universe, ipso facto, that means someone with a capital S put it there. They know it can't happen by chance that the Earth would be in the center. And so, and, and why? What, what does that do for them? Well, if the Earth is in the center, 
that just smacks too much of God. And so, if even if we know that it's scientifically viable, we are going to do everything in our power to show that the other system, the heliocentric system, is the one that we prefer, and we're going to pretend that that's the truth, that that's the only system that works. And that's why, and, and if we do, what do we do for ourselves? Well, that means that the Earth, like Carl Sagan said, is out there in the remote recesses of space, uh, tucked away somewhere in some lonely place with no signpost saying, you know, you are here, and we don't know where it is, but it's out there somewhere, and that is all going to promote the idea that the Earth got there by time and chance, you see. Mm -hmm. And so you're dealing with two totally different metaphysical philosophies here. One that wants the Earth in the center and one that doesn't. And um, so that, that's where the question really goes to. Do you think that there is a uh, conspiracy within the scientific community to silence those who disagree with their preferred theories as far as uh, cosmology is concerned and other areas of science as well? Oh, yeah. A concerted effort. I mean, just look at what they did to the principle when that came out. Even to suggest that the Earth could be in the center, that, that more than anything else I've ever seen got them riled up. I mean, I've seen them riled up when they found uh, dinosaur bones uh, that inside they found, you know, blood vessels and blood cells. They found collagen, and that would make these dinosaurs very young. Uh, and as opposed to their evolutionary theory that said they came 65 million years ago. I've seen them get upset about that, but I've never seen them get as upset as us putting out the movie The Principle saying that the Earth could be in the center of the universe because that's a much larger picture. That, as I said, means ipso facto that someone with a capital S put it there. And if this world is not run by chance, time and chance, it is actually made by a God who put the Earth in the center, that changes everything. Every, every single discipline that they've been under, any art or science, you know, from cosmology to archaeology, paleontology, any of the ologies, they're all affected directly by the fact that we didn't start by time and chance and, and end up in the remote recesses of space. We are in the center because a good God put us there. And, and what does that mean if the good God put us there in the center? Well, that means that we know he, he exists because we are in the center, and that also means we're responsible to him. And if we're responsible to him, what does that entail? Well, that means we have to account for our sins. And that's what mankind doesn't want to hear. He'll do anything possible to get away from being accounted or being responsible for his sins. And, mm -hmm. so, and so this is what it's all about, you see. It's a much larger picture than just geocentrism. And yes, so to answer your question, boy, they will... There are some honest scientists out there, however, and I quote them in my books, just so people know that they're out there, that have come out and said, oh, yes, we know the geocentric system is perfectly viable scientifically. We just don't, you know, we just don't prefer, the, you know, because I'll lose my job. All those sheepskins I have on the wall, they will mean nothing. I'll lose my six-figure salary. I will become a pariah. 
in the science world. If I start saying that not only is geocentrism scientifically viable, but it's actually true. Can you imagine? Oh, yeah. So to protect their turf, they circle around the wagons, and um, that's where we're at right now. Now, are there any scientists that are openly um, that openly admit that geocentrism is true and, and try to, uh, I guess, uh, teach geocentrism? Very few. Uh, there, um, I, you know, I, I have a list of people, you know, probably less than 50 across the world who are Ph.D. physics scientists, you know, who say, yeah, we believe geocentrism is true. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're very outnumbered. There was one guy that um, I converted to geocentrism who is a Ph.D. in nuclear physics. And he was so enamored by it, and he's a Christian, that uh, he wrote a paper and he, uh, on Machian mechanics. And I just explained what they were because it all came from Ernst Mach, who basically said Newton could not assume that the Earth or that the universe was absolute. And so he wrote a paper using Machian mechanics to show how viable geocentrism was scientifically. And he got it into the European Journal of Physics in uh, 2013. Now, the reason he got it in there is because they didn't know that he was supporting geocentrism. They knew that he was basing his whole theory on Machian mechanics. Now, everybody in the physics world accepts Mach, but they don't attach the word geocentrism to it because neither did Mach. You know, Mach didn't come out and say, oh, now I'm a geocentrist because I see that both systems can work. He, was, he still remained a heliocentrist, and for obvious reasons, the same reasons I just told you about. But uh, anyway, this person got his paper published in the Euro European Journal of Physics, and he sent me a copy, and it's, I, as a matter of fact, I quote him in my book, Galileo was wrong. I show basically the whole paper that he wrote. And then he says, well, if they accepted that, um, maybe they'll accept a second paper I want to work on. So he's, he wrote a second paper and submitted it to them for, for publishing. First, it has to go through peer review. This is the big thing in science. It, they have a whole committee set up to see if you've passed muster. And uh, he said that if they did it the first time, maybe they'll do it the second time. But by the second time, word got around that he was promoting geocentrism and the European Journal of Physics refused to even peer review his paper much less publish it and so we knew there it is again you see you mentioned that dirty word geocentrism even though they all know that it works uh, yeah you won't get the time of day from these people now I would like you to uh, just address a rumor that I've heard in passing on YouTube and uh, some different groups on Facebook. I've heard it suggested that geocentrism, along with this uh, new flat Earth movement, is a CIA psyop. What do you think about that? Well, the flat Earth movement may be a psyop, but uh, <laughs> it's certainly not the geocentric. Um, that's one of, and listen, they tried to recruit me. The flat earth people have tried to recruit me. I've said, absolutely not. I said, you guys, 
you're just, you're going down the wrong path. Um, if you look at the history, there was hardly any. There was like one, possibly two fathers of the church that gave some credence to a flat earth, but that's only because um, one of them was Lactantius, and he said, yeah, I don't like the idea that man is standing upside down on a spherical earth. I just, I, you know, I like it better. This is called the antipode issue, and some of the fathers dealt with this. Antipodes means opposite your feet, and he says, I, I would prefer that men stand upright because God made man upright. Now, that's bad exegesis, so the basis for why he wanted a flat earth was flat, and but he's the only father that basically came out and said that, uh, even though he came to it indirectly. Um, so nobody in the church was, uh, you know, promoting flat earthism. They had there's one guy, Cosmos, uh, Cosmos the monk, he was promoting it in like the sixth or the seventh century. He was the only one though, and um, and if you go through the medievals, nobody was teaching flat earth. So it doesn't have a pedigree. It has no exegetical history behind it. But all these same fathers of medievals were all geocentrists. Why? Because it said the Bible teaches it, okay? The Bible does not teach a flat earth. All these passages that these flat earthers are getting, and I, I wrote a book on it uh, two years ago called Flat Earth, Flat Wrong. It's 750 pages long. And I went through every biblical passage, and I, I can exegete them because I know the Hebrew and the Greek, and I can show you grammatically what these passages mean. And I, and I show in my book, none of them mean that the earth is flat. They may use, the English translations may use things that make it look like it might be flat, but not the original languages. So uh, that's why I did a large work on that, because I didn't want geocentrism to be hampered by this whole illusion of the earth being flat. And so I've tried to separate the two as much as I can. And all the big boys out there who are flat earthers, and I'm talking about the bigger names, they all know me, and they all know where I stand. They all they do respect me, and that is because you know we've dared to put geocentrism out as a scientifically viable position, and even make a movie of it, and so they applaud that, and uh, and so they don't attack my position because they they'd actually be attacking themselves because they believe in geocentrism too mm -hmm. but i've told them in no uncertain terms that we cannot work together because the bible doesn't teach it science does not support it that is the flat earth and um, the history doesn't show it as well so yeah because some some people consider that i've talked to consider you to be kind of the the uh the one who kind of opened the door for the flat earth movement and that a lot of people that are in the flat earth movement were inspired by uh, the work that you were doing with geocentrism. Uh, how would you respond to the people who kind of attribute you to be the father of modern flat earthism indirectly, of course? Yeah, well, unfortunately, um, I'm straddled with that title. But if you look at the history of flat earthism, uh, it started in the 1880s with Robotham and his work at the, um, at the canal in England. And, um, then it, and, and flat earthism has had its ups and downs. Um, it, it lost favor after the 1880s, and then it revived in the 1990s 
and then it went down again, and then it revived again in 2004, and then it went down again, and then it revived again in 2009, and then it went down again, and then it rose up again when our movie came out, The Principal, in 2014. So anybody who tries to attach my name to I said, no, you need to look at your own history. Uh, you've started way, way back um, with Robotham in the 1880s, and it's been an up-and-down thing with you ever since. So basically they just latched on to the next thing that could help them revive their their flat earthism, and that was the principle that came out in 2014. Yeah, I appreciate your uh, your explanation there. Um, now, which geocentric model would you say is the most scientifically accurate? Well, um, geometrically speaking, okay. Now, when I say geometrically, I'm talking about having the distances and the circular motions all basically the same. Uh, so Ptolemy's model can work. Um, the uh, some of the Indian models can work, and the uh, model proposed by Tycho de Brahe can work. That's the um, model that basically everybody was using to fight against Galileo. Uh, Tycho de Brahe. Uh, and, but then there's a, another model that came along. It's very similar to Tycho de Brahe's, but it does what I told you in the beginning of the program. It shifts the Earth from being the geometric center into being the center of mass of a revolving universe. That system works the best, and that's because it can show the various movements in the sky that the heliocentrist sees, and that the heliocentrist had used for quite a long time as proof of heliocentrism, and that is stellar parallax and stellar aberration. But the, the new and improved Tychonic model that makes the Earth the center of mass and makes the Sun the geometric center of the universe can show stellar parallax, stellar aberration, and much more simply, and easily understood than the heliocentric model can do. So geocentrism is advanced uh, from quite a ways from the original model that Aristotle had used and then Ptolemy had used after Aristotle. And that, that model, and we got to give Galileo some credit here, that model that Ptolemy used um, really... Although it accounted for all the movements in the sky, it couldn't do so for Mercury and Venus because Ptolemy had put them in the wrong place, basically. But he knew enough about the ins and outs of planetary movements to say that, you know what, I may have not put Mercury and Venus in the wrong place. So in his amalgamist, he left six variables so that if Someone after him came along and said, okay, Mercury and Venus, you put them in the wrong place. They belong here and here. He would have the variables already in his system that could take that and make that model improved and, and much more accurate. Um, and Galileo was the one who found that he put Mercury and Venus in the wrong place. And But Galileo took it the next step further that he shouldn't have and said, well, 
the fact that Ptolemy couldn't account for Mercury and Venus means the geocentric model itself is wrong. And that was wrong for him to conclude that. Yeah, parts of Ptolemy's model were wrong, but not the, syst the whole system in itself. And, so, and that's where Galileo went off the track, and that's where the church Ptolemy went off the track. So, um, in Copernicus's model, when it came out in 1543, basically what he was doing was he was using the heliocentric model that was um, developed by Pythagoras in the sixth, around, yeah, sixth century BC, and it was still being maintained by Aristarchus of Samos in the third century BC. And that's basically where Copernicus got his model from, where he put the sun in the center and the planets outside the sun and revolving around the sun. So it wasn't an original model that Copernicus developed. As a matter of fact, he found out the same thing Aristarchus of Samos found out, and that is if you put the sun in the center and you have the planets going around it, the model doesn't work. <laughs> okay, So he, he started his uh, book by 1510, and at that time, it was called the Commentoriolus. And by 1530s, he's still working on this thing because he wants to publish another book. And he sees how complicated it really is. And so he has to start adding in the same epicycles that he had accused Ptolemy of having in order, to make, in order for Ptolemy to make his model work. And by the time he's done writing the second edition of the Com Commentoriolus, he has more epicycles in his model than Ptolemy does in his. Copernicus has 48 epicycles. Ptolemy only had 40. So, <laughs> by the time, so when, he's, when he published his second edition, basically, which is titled De Revolutionibus, um, he's got 43, 48 epicycles in that model. And so it's more complicated than Ptolemy's model. So something's amiss here. Nobody really has it right. And I'll, I'll tell you this today. Even the heliocentrists today who use Kep Kepler's model with the, uh, epi with the uh, elliptical orbits and all that stuff, they still don't have it right. It's still complicated out there because you have, you have to deal with the, with the major problem, and that is the perturbations of the planets. That is, each planet's going to have some kind of gravitational um, influence on the other planets. And it's going to slow them down. It's going to speed them up. And, and sometimes this happens haphazardly. And so and they tried to use what they call a Fourier analysis to try to basically answer this problem. And the, even the Fourier analysis doesn't answer the problem. Because it can never get to the end to say, okay, here's the exact model that's being operated in the skies. Uh, it's just almost impossible to put that down on paper. So everybody knows that this whole thing is very complicated. And basically, we're just dealing with large chunks of, of the movements in the sky and putting them into a model and, and using them as, as best we can. Now, can you run us through what you would consider to be the two most compelling scientific evidence for geocentrism? Yes. Um, we can look at this on a small scale and a large scale. 
in the principle, we deal with it basically, I, I would say most of the movie deals with it basically on the large scale. And maybe we should start there first. Um, they discovered in 1978 this, well, no, let me go back a little bit. I have to give you a little history. In the 1940s, they were getting hints that there was this radiation that permeated the universe. And it was at a very low energy level, around, let's say, between 1 and possibly 5 um, on the scale of measuring radiation. And then in 1963, two scientists... Penzias and Wilson discovered this same radiation again, and the, it was all by mistake, actually. Um, somebody actually thought it was bird droppings that they, that they were getting a radiation level from. And, um, but no, they found that, that this radiation was coming from the whole universe, hitting the Earth from every angle at... Uh, 2.75 um, degrees Kelvin. So that's pretty low temperature. It's almost near absolute zero, but still it's measurable. And everybody said at that time, oh, well, this makes so much sense now, you know, because Hubble and a few of his colleagues in the 1930s had developed this idea that we got here by a Big Bang. And a Big Bang that started at 3,000 degrees Kelvin, and as time went and the explosion spread out, well, we're now at that point where the temperature of that explosion is 2.75 degrees Kelvin, which is a lot different than 3,000 degrees, of course. So, in other words, it's cooled to that point. And they said, oh, this makes perfect sense because if the, there was a Big Bang explosion, then it would, it would go out in every direction and it would cool. And now we're at the cool part of that explosion, 13.78 billion years later. And so everybody was who, who, hooraying and hurrying, you know, wow, we found the proof of the Big Bang. And until they sent some satellites up in 1978 and they found out that, wow, this radiation is not what we expected it to be if there was a Big Bang explosion. If you have a Big Bang explosion, the, the explosion, by the laws of physics, has to go out smoothly and homogeneously. In other words, there's not one part that's going to be hotter one, uh, one side of the universe is going to be hotter than the other side. It's all going to be the same basic temperature, 2.75 degrees Kelvin. But they found out that, no, it wasn't. Uh, they had what they would call lumps, lumps of higher heat in one area of the universe and uh, lumps of lower heat in another part of the universe. And that's puzzled them because it wasn't homogeneous. So they sent up a probe called the COBE probe in 1990, and this was set up about 500 miles above the Earth, and it measured. It went around the Earth, and it measured all the radiation that was coming from every part of the universe that was hitting the Earth. And they found the same 
evidence that they found in 1978, that it wasn't smooth, it wasn't homogeneous. It was lumpy. And so they're all scratching their heads, wondering how they're going to answer this. And these lumps were significant. It's not like, you know, little dot here, little dot there. These were like whole regions of the universe that were a higher temperature. And you could map these things out and see where they were and how they coordinated with other parts that were not as hot. And so they're scratching their heads and they figure, okay, well, let's send up another probe that's more accurate. Maybe we got some fuzziness in the instruments and blah, blah, blah. And so they made another one. And that was in um, 2001 called the, uh, the WMAP. That's the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe. Now, anisotropy is the word that means not smooth, okay? You can have isotropy, or uh, that is something's very smooth, or anisotropy. And anisotropy means it's not smooth out there, and so it's going to basically detect where these anisotropies are, where these higher versus lower temperatures are. And lo and behold, it comes back, and the data it comes back with is exactly the same as it was in 1990 and 1978. No change. The only change was that it was actually more accurate in its data collecting. And so now they were more, even more certain that the uh, radiation in the universe wasn't uh, isotropic or homogeneous. And as, as a matter of fact, at that time, in 2004, uh, Bush, President Bush was, uh, you know, attacking Iraq and all these other places, and he called the, his enemies the axis of evil. It was, what, North Korea, Iraq, Iran, who, I forget what the fourth one was. But, um, so two scientists from England who wrote about this radiation and the fact that it was anisotropic um, were, uh, they, they coined the phrase, the axis of evil for this radiation. Now, that's a curious term. Why, why the axis of evil? Well, what they found was from this WMAP probe was that not only were there pockets of uh, anisotropy out there, they were aligned in a way, if you added them all up and calculated them and what their positions were, they were aligned in a way that formed a direction from one end of the universe to the other end of the universe, uh, like a line going right through it, that went right through the ecliptic of the Earth. Now, the ecliptic of the Earth is a 23.5 degree angle off the equator of the Earth. And, you know, the heliocentrists claim that that 23.5 degree angle is the measure of the Earth's tilt that gives us the seasons. The geocentrist says that the equator is perpendicular to the north-south pole and that the 23.5 degree angle is the angle that the sun is going around the earth. Okay, so in other words, you have in this big monstrous universe that these people believe in, I mean, they think the universe is 93 billion light, re light years in diameter. That's big, okay? compared to the Earth, that's a little p. Uh, and they found that this radiation makes a line that goes from one end of that 93 billion light-year universe to the other end, and it goes right through the Earth as it's doing so. So what does that mean? 
Well, that means the Earth is in the center of it all. And the, these two scientists from England were so disturbed by it that they coined it the axis of evil. Why is it evil? Well, because it just totally destroys the Copernican principle that, that the, the Earth is out there in the remote recesses of space uh, with no design, no purpose, uh, just out there, you know, like dust floating in the sky. But here, this radiation shows that, wow, we are right in the center. As a matter of fact, one of the people we had on our, in our movie, Lawrence Krauss from the Arizona State University, had, let me see, how many years before? Nine years prior, did an interview with some other outfit in 2006, and they asked him about this evidence of the radiation. And he goes, yeah, well, it looks like this puts us in the center of the universe. And if that isn't true, that means all of our physics is false. Okay, so he made quite a statement. And as a matter of fact, he's one of the reasons why we made the movie. And then we found all other kinds of scientists admitting the same thing uh, more than we had imagined. And we read all their papers. We interviewed them all. And so what you get in the principle is just a you know, small fraction of the information we got from them. But at any rate, they were all agreeing with this, that this puts the Earth in the center of the universe. So there's one major instance of, you know, of scientific evidence for that. Then, you know, they couldn't believe their ears and their, or their eyes, and so they sent up another probe just to make sure that, wow, you know, that there wasn't any foreground contamination or problems with the instruments or what. Let's just do it again. We got the money. And so by 2009... They designed another satellite even greater and more accurate than the, the one they used in 2001. And lo and behold, what did it come back with? In 2013, it came back with the same data that, yes, the radiation is not isotropic. It's not homogeneous. There's lumps all over the universe, and these lumps are lined up that puts a line that goes right from one end of the universe to the other and it goes right through the earth in the center of the universe. So, you know, there's an old saying in America, three strikes and you're out. And so they've had three probes now in the last 20 years, from, from 1990 all the way up to 2013, and they all came back with the same information. And so what do these scientists do with this? Well, they just say it's an anomaly. Well, someday we'll explain it. We can't explain it now. And so it was put, it was put to bed. Nobody jumped on this and said, hey, the Bible's true. The earth is in the center of the universe. You know, you're not going to find that on the CBS Evening News. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, would would we be in the the middle of this of this axis, you know, like directly in the center of uh, both ends of the universe from where this uh, this axis is uh, this axis line is drawn? Yes. And, And they've they've measured that, too. Uh, there were some scientists from the University of Michigan that said, well, let's see if this actually goes through the galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. And um, they found out, no, this line does not go through the galaxy. It only goes through the Earth. So they've answered the, 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 the major question, was can somehow we move this line around that it doesn't go through Earth? And the answer is no. And I actually should give you, since we already talked about the Big Bang, I think it would be, Apropos that we talked about Hubble, Edwin Hubble, he's the man whose uh, name is on the, um, 
the telescope that circles the Earth, the Hubble telescope, um, how, how we got to this Big Bang issue, that's even more important, I think, than the cosmic microwave radi- radiation issue. If, if you have some time, I'll, I'll do that. Go ahead, absolutely. Okay, so um, in, the, in the late 1920s, Edwin Hubble, one of the most famous astronomers in the world of that day, is looking through his telescope. And now we have two very big telescopes in California, the Polomar Telescope and the Mount Wilson Telescope. And they're like 100-inch lenses. So these, these are pretty big. They're the biggest in the world. And we're looking out here. Hubble's looking out at these galaxies for the first time in history. Men see galaxies right through Hubble's telescope. And as he's studying them, he notices certain things about them. And that is that when he, when he analyzes the spectrum that these lights put off. So in other words, they have white light that comes into the lens. And then you put this through a spectrometer and you can see the breakdown of what that light is made of because light's made of seven colors. And he's looking at his um, spectroscopic results and he sees that every galaxy that he views in his telescope is shifted toward the red end of that spectrum. And that means, like if you were looking at a rainbow and you see the seven colors of the rainbow, it means that every rainbow that you looked at would be more red than it would be purple at the other end. You'd have a bigger space for the red than you would the purple. That's what that means in you know sort of layman's terms. So, And so the question, if you're a thinking human being, the question is, why are all these galaxies shifted to the red end of the spectrum? Every single galaxy, okay? So he's not stupid. He knows that... If he's seeing red, that means he's in the center of it all. Because if he was seeing some of the galaxies blue shifted, and we're not talking about local galaxies. We're we're not talking about Andromeda galaxies that are in our environs. We're talking about way, way out there galaxies. Um, If if these way, way out there galaxies had some blue shifts to them, and red shifts, that, mean we, that means we would not be in the center. And so um, this is bothering him. He only sees red shifts, and, and he writes this in his 1937 book, The Observational Approach to Cosmology. And he says, all right, look, uh, we can't, and it, this means the Earth is in the center, but we can't have that. This is intolerable. This is not acceptable. I mean, he uses all these graphic terms. Like, it's almost like a soap opera that you're reading. And this is something that we can only have as a last possible resort to the phenomena that we see. But for now, we're going to try to explain it away. Because we all know that the Earth isn't in the center of the universe. How could that be? You see, so they're working off of philosophy and their metaphysics. And they're seeing the scientific evidence that's disagreeing with it. And so what do you do? Well, you start twisting the scientific evidence or you give an alternate explanation to why you see an Earth-centered universe. And this is what he did. He said, all right, here's the way we're going to fight this. 
we're going to take away the center. We're going to make a universe without a center. And that way, the Earth can't occupy the center. And how can we do that? Well, we can make the universe into a balloon. And we can say that the only universe that exists is on the surface of that balloon. And so we'll put all the galaxies on the surface of that balloon. And then how are we going to create a redshift from that? Here, this is how we do it. We blow that balloon up. We keep blowing it and making it expand. And what's going to happen? Well, all those galaxies that we put on the surface are now going to be expanding away from one another. And what's that expansion going to do? It's going to turn the light from each of those galaxies to the red end of the spectrum. Okay? So, voila! We've just answered the problem. And that's where the Big Bang came from. It came from the result of a man who didn't like seeing the Earth in the center of the universe and had to create another universe to get out of that problem. And so he creates this expanding universe. And then some other guys come along after him, and sorry to say, one of them was a Belgian priest named Father Lemaitre, uh, who said, well, if the universe is expanding, well, that means over time it's been expanding, and let's reverse the time. And so let's reverse it back and back and back, and what do we get? Well, we get this little dot in the center all alone by itself, and that must be where the explosion came from, from this little dot, whatever it's called. And they didn't know what to call it. The last term they used uh, you know, a few years ago was a singularity, and that doesn't explain anything. All it means is it's a single entity in, the, in, in wherever, <laughs> and that it explodes. And, of course, they ex assumed that it exploded because Hubble already gave him the expanding universe. So they figured, okay, well, let's just put the blocks one on another, and that means this little thing, this little entity had to explode. But nobody explained how it exploded or why it exploded. It just exploded because that's the only uh, solution they could come up with, you see. So this whole idea of the Big Bang is basically anti-geocentric cosmology. That's where it originated from. But nobody knows that. All they hear is Big Bang and, yeah, with 13.87 billion years ago and all that stuff. But nobody tells you what the origins are, but I tell you in my books. <laughs> now, <clears throat> as far as relativity is concerned, if we were on the moon or Mars, wouldn't relativity, like the arguments that um, of general relativity, wouldn't it work no matter where you're at? Yeah, it would. And that's the flaw of general relativity. It can't tell you which one is the true one. <laughs> okay. So what we can do is we can use what they've stumbled into, and that is that Newton can no longer assume to be correct because of relativity. And, and what that does for us is it opens the door again so people can now discuss the issue. Prior to the relativity of Mach and Einstein, nobody wanted to talk about what was going around what. After Newton, everybody thought the case was closed. And that's why you'll get most of the proponents of heliocentrism today trying to use Newton, because that was the only one they, they can use where it basically cut out the geocentric uh, alternative. But now that we have relativity, we can at least open the discussion and have someone sit down with us and say, okay, so now you've come full circle. 
you come right back to the point that geocentrism is a scientifically viable position to have, not only by the geometrics, but by the dynamics that relativity uh, purports to have. Uh, well, let's take it to the next level. If we're going to come to the discussion table, what else can we talk about? Here's one we can talk about. We can talk about the first theory of Albert Einstein, which was special relativity, that he invented in 1905. General, the general theory of relativity he invented 10 years later in 1915, and that's the one that made him come full circle back to the very geocentrism that he denied in his special theory of relativity in 1905. It only took him 10 years, okay? So general relativity opens the door now to go back and analyze, well, what about this special theory of relativity? What was that all about? And you know what? It was all about the same thing that we just discovered with Hubble. Hubble saw an Earth-centered universe, didn't like it, so he created the Big Bang universe. In 1887, these two scientists, Albert Michelson and Edward Morley, did experiments with light, and they saw that it put the Earth in the center of the universe and non-moving. And they were scratching their heads just like Hubble was. And they said, well, you know, this doesn't co comport with our scientific view that the Earth is moving and isn't in the center. So what are we going to do? And so they were scratching their heads for a while until about 1892, where a Dutch scientist came along named Hendrik Lorentz. And Lorentz said, look, the only way we're going to be able to explain this is by saying that Michelson's instrumentation, the things he used for his experiment, were modified somehow in the experiment itself that made it look like the Earth wasn't moving. In other words, his, his instruments were modified to give a false positive for a non-moving Earth. And so that's where they started from. This was their premise, okay? Unproven as it was, it was still their premise that the Earth is moving, and thus we have to explain away the results of Michelson's experiment. And the only way this famous physicist, world-renowned physicist, could do so was, was by saying that Michelson's instruments shrunk when he did the experiment, okay? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Man. so it yeah. seems like there's the, all the all this science as far as biblical or as far as cosmology is concerned. Mm -hmm. It seems that all these roads lead back to geocentrism and trying to basically disprove it. Yeah, let me just add a little bit because we have to answer special relativity. Uh, Einstein came along a few years later, he read all of Mach's material, all of Lorentz's material, and he said, yeah, I, but I, I understand what Lorentz is saying, that the, that's the instrument shrunk, but I don't like the way he got there. Because the way he got there was Lorentz said that the ether in the universe against which the Earth was traveling as it revolved around the sun put pressure on Michelson's instruments and made them shrink. Einstein didn't like that. He, he, did un, he did believe and accept that there had to be a shrinkage somehow, but he didn't like the fact that Lorenz said it was the ether that was putting pressure on material. Why? Well, because everyone had 
previously believed that ether was non was was frictionless, that it couldn't put pressure on matter. Okay, now all of a sudden we're saying that it does put pressure on matter. Uh, that just doesn't jive. And so Einstein was smart enough to see that, but he still wanted the Earth to be revolving around the sun just like Lorentz. So what do you do? Well, you blame it on light. You say that because light has a constant speed, that means the messages it's sending to our eyes can't get there fast enough, and thus it, it, puts, it, it makes it appear as if the instrumentation of Michelson is shrinking. Okay, And then what do you have to do? If you're, if you're going to believe that, then what else do you have to do? Well, if the, if the instrument is shrunk and that instrument is going from point A to point B, well, that means that instrument isn't going to get there in the same time as it would have if it wasn't shrunk. Because if you shrink the instrument, that means it's less in length, so it's going to take a longer time to get to, get to point B. So what do you have to do then? Well, I guess you have to dilate the time. You have to give it more time to travel. And this is where the whole issue of time dilation comes into effect. It's only because Einstein has to give more time for his object to move because he's already shrunk the object. Okay? And if that's the case, what else do we have to do? Well, we're going to have to increase the mass. Because if you shrink the object and it can't get from point A to point B in the same time, well, that means you have the same mass, but you have less volume. So you have more mass per unit volume than you did before when it wasn't shrunk. And so now this whole thing about mass increase has come into the special theory of relativity. So in other words, the special theory of relativity says you have to have length contraction, time dilation, and mass increase. All for what? So that we can keep the Earth moving around the sun. Otherwise, if we don't have those three things, then the Earth is standing still in space, you see? So that was the whole thing about special relativity. That's the reason why it was invented, to keep the Earth moving around the sun. Now, is there any evidence at all that the Earth revolves around the sun? No. <laughs> That's exactly the point, is, is all these experiments. And Michael Samorley were not the only ones. As far back as 1820s, uh, Dominique Arrego, a French scientist, was already doing uh, work with light, starlight. And he did two different experiments, and he found in both of them that the Earth wasn't moving. And they tried to explain this away by using the um, Fresnel drag theory by saying that, well, the ether moved the light so that it, it made it look like the Earth wasn't moving, but it really is moving, okay? And then they did another experiment after that. Fresnel came along around the 1860s or so, another French scientist. And then they did another experiment done by George Bedell Airy in 1871, and he used two telescopes, one filled with water and one filled with air, and he measured the incidence of starlight into the telescope. And the theory was that if the Earth was moving, then the light beam going through the water telescope would hit the wall of the telescope, okay? And that would prove the Earth was moving. Lo and behold, what did he find? He found out that the light from the star going through the water telescope did not hit the wall of the telescope. It went right to the eyepiece. Which means what? That the Earth isn't moving, you see. So that was in 1871. 
And 10 years later, Michelson did his first experiment uh, in 1881 and found the Earth wasn't moving by using a very sophisticated thing called an interferometer. And they wanted to make sure they got that right because, you know, they're scratching their head. Come on, we need some evidence the Earth is moving and we can't find it. We've had three experiments already and, the, and it shows the Earth isn't moving. What are we going to do? All right, well, let's make a, a more accurate instrument. We'll put the whole mechanism in a mercury bath and make sure there's no vibrations. We'll make sure there's no kind of uh, uh, incidence of, uh, you know, moisture or pressure or whatever. We'll make sure everything's down to zero and we'll do the experiment again. So they did it six years later in 1887. And lo and behold, not only did they find the same evidence, it was actually more accurate than the one in 1881. So what I'm saying is all the experiments that were done in the laboratory under the best precautions were showing these guys that the earth wasn't moving. All right. And so they're under a lot of pressure. And so Lorenz comes up with this bogus theory that the instrument was shrunk during the experiment. And even, even, and even he and his colleague, Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald said, yeah, I proposed the same thing in Ireland, and I was laughed out of the classroom. Well, yeah, I know, I know why you were laughed out of the classroom. Because the same ether that you said was frictionless is now becoming, you know, friction and can press against uh, mass and make it shrink. So no wonder they laughed at you, you see. So, yeah, there is no experiment that's been done that has proven that the Earth revolves around the sun. Every experiment that has been done for that has shown that the Earth isn't moving. Now, what, what would qualify, in your opinion, as evidence for the heliocentric model? Nothing. <laughs> right. What I'm saying is, like, if there was evidence out there what would it look like in your there opinion? is none <laughs> <laughs> okay there is and the, look i'm not just saying that they have come out and said we can figure out no experiment to prove that the earth is moving around the sun okay so how would if if i was going if i was dead set at proving to you that the sun was the center what would I have to do to prove it to you? Um, well, you'd have to have an absolute object that you knew didn't move in order to be able to measure all the other things in the universe that are moving. If you had an absolute object and you knew it wasn't moving, that's the only way that you could say any object, including the sun, is either moving or not moving. But relativity defeats itself in that sense because there is no absolute object, you see. So there's no way, empirically speaking, that they could measure whether the sun is moving or not moving, no matter how big or small it is. And that goes for any other object in the universe. You have to have an absolute from which to judge it. See, and Einstein knew this, and so he tried to make the absolute the speed of light. And that's ironic because for all the talk that he gave about his theory being relative, everything was relative because it was all in motion, he knew instinctively, metaphysically, he had to have an absolute from which to judge everything else. And so what did he do? He made light absolute. That is, it can only go 186,000 miles per second 
in a in a vacuum, of course, but that's understood. Uh, and that's the absolute from which you can judge every other movement in the universe. Okay, now that's for special relativity. He developed that that hype that postulate. Okay, ten years later, as I said in 1915, he he invents the general theory of relativity because he finds out that the special theory is inadequate because it doesn't doesn't include gravity and inertial forces. So once you add gravity to the mix and inertial forces, um, everything changes, including what? The speed of light. Okay. So the very thing that he used as his absolute in special relativity is now turned to be relativistic in his general theory of relativity. And that is the speed of light is not constant and it can go any speed. Now, most people either don't know it or won't admit it who talk about general relativity, but that's what that theory holds. So it's directly opposite of what his special theory said. And why? Well, because he, he found out that the special theory was inadequate, you see. But by this time, you know, nobody wants to admit in geocentrism, even though everything Einstein's saying in general relativity is leading directly to that conclusion, uh, you know, but that's as far as they can go. They can only give you two possibilities. Mm -hmm. So uh, unless you have an absolute, there's no way that you're going to be able to determine it. Now, what does the Bible do? The Bible gives us the absolute from which to measure everything else in the universe. What is that? It's a fixed earth. Once you have a fixed earth, you can determine the distance, the size of everything else in the universe and how fast it's moving. Why? All you have to do is triangulate. We, we know how to do that very easily. You have a fixed point, you can triangulate anything. And, and, that, and that's what God gave us the fixed earth for, so that we could measure where we are and how things are functioning. Without it, we're lost. What is the most compelling argument that you have heard for the heliocentric model? Uh, the most compelling argument uh, would be... Um, prior to the development of the neo-tychonic model, if you use the, the model that was being used against Galileo in his time, that is the tychonic model, uh, you would not be able to demonstrate stellar parallax or stellar aberration. And so that was the most compelling argument at the time. And that withstood the test for up until the mid-20th century, because the mid-20th century is when the neo-tychonic model was developed by geocentric scientists, and that was the time that they were able to explain stellar parallax and stellar aberration. Not only explain it, but explain it actually better than the heliocentric model could explain it. So that's as far as I'll go with that question, uh, looking at the whole history of the issue uh, was it right for the heliocentrists to point the finger to the geocentrists and say, come on, your model doesn't work scientifically? Well, yeah. Uh, Post-Tychonic and pre-Neo-Tychonic model, they could actually say that. Because, look, we, if we can't just say that, oh, yeah, the Earth is in the center, and, you know, everything's going around it without scientific proof. 
And if you can't demonstrate stellar parallax, you're not in the game. Um, so that would be what I would use, historically speaking, to say, yeah, that heliocentrists may have had a point until we, we got further down the road. Now, in your opinion, what are the dangers involved in the whole teaching of the heliocentric model? Uh, like I said, uh, once you have a heliocentric model, then you begin to extrapolate on it. And that means that the Earth is not only going around the sun, but the sun's going around the galaxy. The galaxy is going around another cluster of galaxies. That cluster is going around another cluster. And so where does that put the Earth? Well, it puts it out there somewhere we don't know, okay? And that gives credence to the idea that we got here by time and chance. I'm not saying that God could not make a universe heliocentric. He could. He could make any kind of universe he wants, as long as it all, you know, scientifically fit together. Um, but the fact that the Earth is not in the center gives credence to those on the other side of the God issue to say, oh, well, it could be just time and chance. And then they'll go on and develop that by saying that we now, we, we now believe we live in a multiverse where universes have been here for an infinity of time and are created from universes that are already here. In other words, they make baby universes. This is the view of Michio Kaku in our movie, The Principle. Uh, they make baby universes, and that baby universe is going to grow to be a big universe, and it's going to produce baby universes, and so on and so on. And so this whole idea that started from the idea that the Earth is revolving around the sun has now become a gargantuan metaphysical hypothesis that we live in a multiverse that's infinite, you see. So they went from one step to the other step. And um, the, the heliocentric view paved the way for them to do that. So, but the geocentric view cuts that short right at the get-go. And it says the Earth is in the center. What are you going to do with that? Well, they don't know what to do with that. That's, that's anathema to them because there's nothing you can do with it. If the Earth is in the center, it's in the center. And that means somebody put it there. And that means you're responsible to him. And that means you're going to be judged for your sins. And that means everything the Bible says about heaven and hell is true. You see, so no, we don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. Man, I really appreciate that answer. Um, now, could, could the idea that the Earth is the center of the universe or the geocentric model, could it possibly be wrong? No, <laughs> there's only there's only two possibilities. The Earth is revolving around the sun or the sun is revolving around the Earth. One of those two has to be true. OK, now, what do I use for evidence that the Earth is in the center and the sun is revolving around it? Well, I use the Bible. The Bible's crystal clear, never gives us any indication it, it, when, it, when it's ever it's talking about movement and motion in the sky, it always talks about the sun. Whenever it talks about something being still and fixed, it always talks about the earth. Okay? There's never not even a hint that the sun is standing still and the earth is moving. Not even a hint. Okay? Even if some passages say the earth uh, moved, 
Well, what it means is it moved internally because there was an earthquake. But it never talks about the Earth moving in space. It's fixed. doesn't rotate. doesn't revolve. So that's Scripture. Then you come to the people that interpret the Scripture before us. The fathers of the church, the medievals of the church, the church itself. They all said the same thing. And the Jews before them. There's never a Jewish commentary that says that the earth is revolving around the sun. So we got 4,000 years of expert exegesis of Scripture all saying the same thing. Okay? Then what do we have? We have the scientific evidence. And that is that we can show, we can demonstrate right from the science why the Bible says what it says. Why all these witnesses that exegeted the Bible say what they say. Here's the scientific evidence. Okay? Does God lie to us then? Is that what you're telling me? Does the Bible lie to us? Do all these expert exegetes, they all blinded to see lies rather than truth? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Okay. And then we have the science. And we know what these guys did. We can read their stories like Hubble saw the earth in the center and didn't want it and made a new system. Michelson saw that the earth wasn't moving. They didn't like it, so they made a new system, a whole new physics. See, so we see the chicanery going on with these people. So you, you put this in a bottle, shake it all up together, and what do you come out with? Yep, it's true. Wow. Now, is there anything else that you would like to add before we close out? Um, gosh, I think we covered pretty much everything. Um. There are other little experiments that happen along the way, but they're all going to lead us to the same direction. Um, you know, we can look at the stars themselves. We had a guy in our movie, uh, John Hartnett, a PhD in physics down in the University of Adelaide, Australia, uh, did studies on the formation of galaxies. And this is like, you know, over, gosh, a dozen or so years and he found that all the galaxies, and we're talking, even if we use the distances of the universe that the heliocentrics use, and that is, you know, we're talking about 250 million light years or more. He says that all these galaxies are arranged in concentric spheres around our galaxy, the Milky Way. And so that would mean that there are concentric spheres outside the Milky Way galaxy starting at 250 million light years away from the Milky Way galaxy. And then he says the next conglomeration of galaxies occurs at 500 million light years away. And the next 750 million light years away. And the next 1 billion light years away. And so what do we got? We've got concentric spheres of galaxies all centered around us. In other words, they're not scattered here and there. They're all systematized into a, into a spherical concentricity that is, again, speaks of somebody designing it that way and putting the Earth in the center. Because if they're all around the Milky Way, of course they're around the Earth because the Earth is in, in the Milky Way. Now, this is interesting, too, because John Hartnett is a Protestant who doesn't want to give any, any credit to the Catholic Church for finding information like this. But who was the first to say, to confirm, officially speaking, that the earth was in the center? 
and that was the Catholic Church when it condemned Galileo and heliocentrism as a formal heresy. And, um, you know, John, being a Protestant, doesn't want to go that far because I, I talked to John and I said, John, if you think the Milky Way is the center of all these concentric spheres of galaxies and you've proven it by your telescope observations and your mathematics and it's flawless and because it, it's been peer reviewed and nobody can find a flaw in it. I said, why don't you go the next step and accept that the Bible says that the Earth is the one that's in the center and the Milky Way just happens to be around it. Why don't you go that? Well, yeah, you know, because then he'd have to become Catholic. And because the Catholics were the ones who, who held it up. And uh, so, you know, there's a lot, even with my Protestant members who might even be partial geocentrists, there's a lot of hesitation to go the whole route and to say that the earth is in the center and isn't moving. And I can see why. I understand it. 